right, good morning. Turn in your Bibles or turn on your phone or tablet uh, to the book of Acts. Uh, We're going to be continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts, verse by verse. We took a short break from our study of the book of Acts, and we did a series um, on Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, looking at uh, some truths there for the month of February. But we are now back in Acts, and um, I'm super pumped. We're looking this morning at uh, the life of Stephen, the life of Stephen in the New Testament, Acts chapter 6, verse 8, uh, through the end of verse 7. And so I don't know, you can count for me, I think it's like 70 verses, so we'll be going through it verse by verse, and we should be out of here by this evening, okay? Um, This is our 15th sermon in the book of Acts. Uh, So we have been studying the book of Acts, and just for perspective's sake, 15th sermon, and we're already in, going to be in chapter 8 next week. So we're doing great. Um, You know, we most recently, like before we took the break from Acts, we looked at Acts 6, 1 through 7, and we talked about when there was a need in the early church, um, the church gathered together and prayed, and, and they identified seven men filled with the Spirit, filled with wisdom, and they, they deployed these leaders, these servant leaders, to address some practical needs in the church. So maybe you remember, if not, you can look back at Acts 6, 1 through 7. There were some widows being not served properly by the Christian church, and it was causing some strife and some division. And so uh, these leaders were identified to help with this. And they, they, they did, they helped. And it said in Acts 6, verse 7, that because this problem was solved, that the word of God multiplied greatly. The church grew. And so now we're in verse 8 of chapter 6, and we're picking up right where we left off. And in fact, one of the people mentioned as one of those seven leaders, sometimes we call them deacons, but just one of those servant leaders mentioned, His name was Stephen. In fact, that is what we're going to see this morning is the life and the death of Stephen. The title of the message this morning is Stephen, Death Full of Christ. And so just as we sort of get into it this morning, let me tell you over the next few weeks as we lead toward Easter, which is April 9th, we're going to be from Acts laying a foundation for Christian mission, okay? We're going to see that through four really, really key stories about key characters in the early church. The first one is today, Stephen. We're going to see as well the life of Philip. And we're going to see how he goes and he shares the gospel. And I wonder, have you heard a sermon on Stephen before, on Philip? We're going to then see on Easter, Lord willing, the story of Saul, the conversion of Saul becoming Paul. And then we will see the conversion of the first Gentile, Cornelius, through the ministry of Peter. And so there's going to be these four really key people, Mount Rushmore, if you will, of the foundation of Christian mission. What's happening, and you're going to really see this happen here this morning, is that there is this big divide happening between the early Christian church and Judaism. 
I mean, it's already been happening. There has been arrests made. There has been threats. There have been beatings and floggings. But we're going to see someone die. Stephen, be killed for his testimony to Christ this morning. You know, not long ago, uh, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates were good friends. Maybe not good friends, but it is said that they often visited each other and talked about what they were working on. Sort of in the early years of Macintosh, they worked together on particular projects where it was said at one time, Bill Gates said this, that there's more people from Microsoft working on the first Macintosh than people from Macintosh. But once Microsoft announced the first version of Windows in 1985, the relationship was broken beyond repair. They went their separate ways. And I only share that because I know that those are categories we have, and I want you to think this morning about how the New Testament church is really breaking away from Jerusalem and from Judaism in a very definite way. And that is the foundation of worldwide mission for Christianity. Why did I pick the quote, death full of Christ? Well, because I was reading John Stott, who I love in his commentary on Acts, and he said, Stephen was ready to be the first true martyr who sealed his testimony by his blood. His death was full of Christ. So now I just want to read some of the verses before us, not all of them at this point, some of them. I want to pray and then I want to dive into our three points this morning. Simple outline, the man, Stephen, his message, and the martyr. So let's look at Acts 6 verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. When they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs and that, that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, watch this, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I'm going to skip now to verse 50 of chapter 7. Actually, verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God 
and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. And we pray, God, that you would inspire us to live a life like Stephen and to die a death full of Christ like Stephen. Lord, we are, we are unworthy to even consider our lives next to Stephen. We're thankful, God, for his boldness and his courage. We're even more thankful for his Savior and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us, who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and who is now in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, standing in the presence of the Father, interceding on our behalf. Lord, we love you, and we pray you would help us to see what Stephen saw this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. First, the man. So first, really, the way Luke, and Luke wrote Acts, the way Luke is telling the story of Stephen is first he talks about just kind of what's going on with Stephen. He introduces him. He talks about why he gets arrested. And he just sort of introduces us to Stephen. So Stephen, the man. So I just want to show you here in verses 8 through 15, which we just read, and I'm not going to read them completely again, but notice that it does say, and Stephen... And, and for the readers of Acts, you'll know that, oh, okay, Stephen, like he was just mentioned as one of the seven deacons or servants who was filled with the Spirit and wisdom. And so now, and Stephen, and it says, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So here's Stephen. Stephen is doing like he has like a miracle working ministry. He's doing great wonders and signs. And maybe it is even noteworthy to say that Stephen was not an apostle. And yet he has this ministry of wonders and signs. It, it's also interesting to think about what is Stephen doing? Like, Stephen, what are you doing? You were relegated to serving tables in Acts 6, 1 through 7. We just talked about this, Stephen. What are you doing? The apostles are the ones who teach. You, Stephen, are to be waiting tables. Well, that's not what Stephen's doing. And I think there's an instructive point for us here. That, that Stephen was, was doing ministry. He was even teaching and proclaiming the gospel. But he also was one of the key servants that served and solved the problem in Acts 6 earlier. I think we learned from that, let's not be too black and white about how we will serve as Christians. Let's not have either or 
this and not this, or this and not this type of thinking about how we will serve as Christians. Let's be careful that we not tell God how to use us. Yes, Stephen was recognized, affirmed, and commissioned as one of the table servants in Acts 6, 1 through 7, and yet he did signs and wonders. God may empower you in ways that do not align with your natural abilities or in ways that do not align with what you think of yourself as doing. Like Stephen, we ought to be open to this. I think it's also noteworthy that Luke goes out of his way to talk about just how nice Stephen was. Stephen was nice. It's kind of unexpected. If I were to ask you, who do you think was the first person killed for their faith, you'd probably say, Oh, definitely Paul. Because a lot of times we think Paul was just such a call-the-baby-ugly, truth-teller type of leader, which isn't really fair to him. But listen, listen, Stephen is so nice. He's helping widows get enough food. He's full of, do you see, it says he's full of grace. And he's full of power. He's doing miracles. This is like the nicest guy. He's even has an, did you see him, verse, uh, was it 15? He has an angel face. <laughs> Make your angel face. Let's see it. No, I'm just kidding. That's so awkward. He has an angel face. He's the sweetest guy ever. If anyone is the Christian who the world would last pick to kill, because we don't like him, it's Stephen. But the world will reject nice Christians, and that really is the point. Prepare to suffer. Stephen was full of grace and power, did all these good deeds, had an angel face, and yet he was persecuted. And why not? Jesus said in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. 2 Timothy 3, Paul said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There really is no way of sort of putting the world and the church in the happy hug and hoping that you never actually offend anybody. It doesn't work. Stephen's nicer than you. And he was persecuted and he died for his faith. We joked about the angel face, but I did want to seriously talk about that for a moment because I think Luke is doing something very purposeful here. In Exodus 34, verse 29, I want to show you this verse. It says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. What Luke is doing here is so purposeful. Just think about it for a minute. Like, their saying of Stephen, their, their accusation against Stephen is that he's like against Moses. And Luke's like, actually, he looks way more like Moses than you guys do. His face is shining like Moses right after he received the Ten Commandments. That's the point. 
So Stephen, deathful of Christ, the man. Verse 8 through 15. Now, let's look at his message. And here we have a long portion of Scripture. A long portion of Scripture. And there's really no way to make it short. And um, let me say this. I'm going to read it. Okay? I'm going to read it. And it's chapter 7, verse 1 through verse 53. I'm going to read it. And here's why. Because it's God's Word. And because I think I can read it really well. (laughs) And also because I want you to hear the argument that Stephen is making. When I approached this passage this week, I was thinking, well, this is a great passage because it's just a big summary of the Old Testament. You know what? It's not just that. It is that, but it's a summary of the Old Testament with a real purpose. Yes, he's telling a story. He's recapping the history of Israel in the Old Testament. But have you ever told a story? You know, you're like trying to argue a point. And you're like, let me tell you a story. And so you tell a story, but you tell it in such a way to argue your point. That's what Stephen's doing. Stephen has been accused and arrested for being, they say, against the temple. They're like, he said he's going to tear down the temple. And he's been accused of being against the law, against Moses. And so Stephen's not so concerned with responding to their false accusation as he is with just putting forth the truth. His focus is not on his innocence. His focus is on truth. So let's just read. Let's read verses 1 through 53. Let's get ready. Are you ready? We've been preparing for this for 15 years, Fellowship Raleigh. Here we go. 53 verses. Let's do this right now. Okay. Stephen responds. So in the high priest, who probably was Caiaphas, who was the same high priest that interviewed Jesus, okay? And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him. God was with him. Hear that. And rescued him out of all of his afflictions. And gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on their second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. 
And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died. He and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. I'm going to stop and take a breath. For those of you who drifted off at some point, this is your cue to come right back in. Verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, There came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me 
slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into, or send you into exile beyond Babylon. Hey, we're almost done. Verse 44. If you've got lost, go to verse 44 right now. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Now here's the end. Stephen turns everything he's And this is the right hook, the closer, the knockout punch. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Good job. We did it. So, the message. That is Stephen's message. And as we read it, I tried my best to underscore certain parts of it. But what I want you to see from the message, first of all, is is this. That those who truly understand the presence of God in the Bible, i.e. the temple, know that God is a God who is on the move with his people. He has always been that way. If you look at how Stephen told that whole story, he starts with God was with Abraham in, what does he say, Ur of the Chaldean? I mean, basically in Iraq. And then he talks about Joseph and he mentions Egypt six times in like five verses. Egypt, I'm saying Egypt, I'm telling you Egypt. He's saying God was with Joseph there. Moses brings them out and at the burning bush. He's told, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. Wait, there's holy ground outside of the temple in Jerusalem? Stephen says, Yes, there is. There always has been. You want to accuse me of not understanding how God dwells with his people in the temple and that I'm anti-temple? Let me tell you a story of the history of the presence of God with his people. Two-thirds of God is go. God is on the move with his people. That's what Stephen is saying. He's laying a foundation for missions. It's really amazing. He talks about the tabernacle, the presence of God in a tent temple with the people in the wilderness. Stephen is telling a story, yes, but he's telling it in a way that shows it's not him who is 
misunderstanding or somehow against the temple. It's them. I also think it's important that we see that people will often accuse others of that which they most hate in themselves. Stephen's entire speech serves to expose that these accusers are the ones who don't properly respect the law at all. They do not receive God's word. They have, he says, uncircumcised hearts and ears. They are the ones who, when Moses was in Egypt at the beginning of his life, and he tried to break up a fight, and they're like, having none of it, Moses, who are you? They've always been rejecting Moses. He's being accused of rejecting Moses, and he's like, let me tell you a really long story about how you've always rejected Moses. That's the point. They rejected Moses then. Then they sort of accept Moses for a little while. He takes them into the wilderness, and they're like, who's Moses? Build us a golden calf. They've always not kept the law. And yet here they're accusing Stephen of being anti-Moses, anti-law. Again, people often accuse others of that which they most hate in themselves. It's not about the, the worshiping the law is not the intent. The law is to reveal to us the holy character of God. It's about God. And no matter how many times these people accusing Stephen of being against the law woke up on a normal day during the week and said, I love the law, it doesn't matter. They didn't love God. And that's the point. They've always rejected God. They've loved the law. They've loved being religious. They've loved their Bible, but they've always rejected the work of the Spirit in their hearts. And they've not loved God. And isn't that just still true today? You can be religious and you can be lost. And religious lost people, guess what they act like? Lost people. And we should completely and totally expect it. And it's always been that way. God rejecting God in his word, rejecting God's people, hating people. That's lost people. It really is. And you can be irreligiously lost or religiously lost. And in Raleigh, dare I say, we have both and maybe more people are religiously lost, think they're okay, but don't really know the gospel at all. So Stephen's message is profound and it's important to see it. But the best part of this message is the martyr. And so that's from verse 54 through 60. And let's look at that now. So Stephen... The man, Stephen the message, now Stephen the martyr. Merriam-Webster defines the word martyr as a person who voluntarily suffers death as the penalty of witnessing to and refusing to renounce a religion. Okay? That's cool. But the word here used in the New Testament is the word martus. It's the word we get martyr from. But that word, just so you know, it just means to witness. To witness. And so when we talk about Stephen being the first witness, we mean that he is the first martyr. He's the first witness who signed his letter of witness with his own blood. He died witnessing. 
Verse 54, again, this point is the martyr, our third point. Now, when they heard these things, so when the people, and again, remember, Stephen was arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin and the rulers and Caiaphas, the high priest, he's in court right here. He gave his testimony in court. And so when you see verse 54, when they heard these things, picture the courtroom that they have assembled as much of a joke as it is. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. My goodness. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. A few observations to make under this point about Stephen the martyr. The first one is, and make sure that you see in verse 55, it says that he was full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen being full of the Holy Spirit, that led to, what did that lead to? And I think it's just important to note Because sometimes we, especially in Christian circles, we think being full of the Spirit leads to just like a really good worship service. Stephen here is full of the Holy Spirit, and it says that he sees into heaven, and what he sees is he sees assurance. You might make a note of the word assurance. He also becomes bold. Probably in the New Testament, the number one thing that being filled with the Spirit does is creates boldness. So the filling of the Spirit gives gospel assurance and boldness. Let me talk for a moment about a few really key dynamics here. First of all, here's a lesson. We should never underestimate the impact that God can make through us if we will be bold and show people what God has shown us. Stephen is filled with the Spirit. God shows him a picture of heaven. He immediately shares it with others. It causes them to get even more angry and kill him. But verse 58 just drops a little thing to us. Did you see it? a young man named Saul. Think about that. Saul is Paul. And he was there. He probably worshipped at the synagogue called the Synagogue of the Freedmen because that was for Diaspora Jews. It's said even from Cilicia, which is where Tarsus was. Saul was there. In fact, 
we might even wonder and question, why is this section so long? Probably because Paul told Luke this whole story and told him how crucial it was in his own life. Also because this really lays the foundation for mission, a missionary on the go God. There's a lot here. Saul was there. And if you really studied these verses that we just read, I think you would see a lot of themes that will later define Paul's ministry. It's amazing. You know, we talk about talk about Macintosh and Microsoft. Talk about Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, these, these influential people. How about Saul? How about Stephen, who was commissioned as a servant leader in the Jerusalem church, helped out with waiting tables for some widows, preached that we have on record one sermon and died. And yet, the effect and the impact of his being willing to share what God showed him boldly changed the world through Saul hearing the gospel. It's profound. Another thing that we really should rest on here in this part of the story is that we must let our hearts Find peace and true assurance from the gospel. That's the point of the vision that Stephen sees. He sees heaven opened up and he sees the Son of Man standing next to God the Father. What do you think that picture is about? One scholar, F.F. Bruce, says it this way. Stephen has been confessing Christ before men, and now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God. Stephen is in a courtroom before, presumably, the throne of, let's say, it's the high priest, Caiaphas. No one is there with Stephen to speak up for him, to be his intercessor, to be his lawyer, to make sure he receives justice, to be a reference to his good character. No one that we can tell speaks up for Stephen in this earthly courtroom. And the result is he's killed. And yet, as he's about to die, God, because Stephen is filled with the Spirit, gives to Stephen a glimpse of the courtroom that actually matters for eternity. And in that courtroom, before that throne, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is standing, not sitting. Why is he standing? Because he is interceding for Stephen. When no one on earth stood up for Stephen, God allowed Stephen to see that Jesus was speaking up for him. Ever felt that way? 
First John says, Children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Hebrews 7 says, He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Stephen the martyr. You know, another lesson from these verses here is just that you will have enemies, but love them like Jesus. It's amazing how Stephen's words mirror the words of Christ. Christ prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen then prayed the same thing. In fact, I read something this week where there are 10 parallels between the death of Stephen and the death of Christ. Death full of Christ. We will have enemies too, but we are to love our enemies. Love them like Jesus. But here's the thing. No one is able to do that unless their heart is full of the peace and the assurance that comes from seeing the Son of Man standing and interceding on our behalf in heaven. And you can see that. You can see it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can see it all in the pages of the Bible in the New Testament where we are taught the gospel. You can see it. Well, I want to close with this. So... um, There is a gate in Jerusalem called the Stephen Gate. And I have a picture of it for you, kind of a current picture of it. Tradition says that this is the gate that Stephen was removed out of the city from and then stoned. Interestingly enough, this is the same gate that Jesus would have taken as he went from Caiaphas's house to the cross. This is the first stop on a road that has 14 stations called the Via Dolorosa and Stephen's Gate is a profound place. And I think a lesson that we can take away from this passage this morning is that we need to get outside the gate. Stephen did, and it changed the world. I'm reminded of Jim Elliott, who died in his 20s in Ecuador, trying to bring the gospel to a tribe that had never heard of Jesus or had a Bible. Was speared to death in his 20s and said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I was sharing this morning with the worship team, and I said I wouldn't share this, but I think I'm, I'm going to. If you're familiar with Oswald Chambers, he wrote the very famous devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. You know, he died at 43. He died at 43, and he only served in ministry for 15 years. And... um 
It's interesting, he died of appendicitis in Egypt and he was ministering there or he was in the military there, I'm not sure. But that book, My Utmost for His Highest, which has probably changed many lives and you can buy it in the lobby after service. But that book wasn't even written. His widow took some of his sermons and made a 365-day devotional out of some of his sermons. My Utmost for His Highest, Oswald Chambers. But I have this quote. Oswald Chambers said this when he was 22. I feel I shall be buried for a time, hidden away in obscurity. Then suddenly I shall flame out, do my work, and be gone. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, pastor and author John Piper says, the people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by one great thing. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the end of the earth and roll on into eternity, you don't need a high IQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches or come from a fine family or a fine school. Instead, you have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, and glorious things, or just one great, all-embracing thing, and then be set on fire by them. May it be so in our lives as we get outside the gate. Let's pray.